whether spirituality has become a private matter because churches are using spirituality to attack and exclude. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. Been a while since there's been a new Walk the Earth question to answer, but I'm glad I'm back. And it's a good time to come back because with the recent jump that uh, includes sharing inappropriate conversations as a podcast on Spotify, this will be the first Walk the Earth episode introduced new that's part of that process of being shared on Spotify. So let me take a quick moment before I begin to address today's question to just provide a little bit of background material. The website at inappropriateconversations.org, which is the host RSS feed for both this podcast and Inappropriate Conversations, Walk the Earth is described this way on its About page. Walk the Earth is a spinoff podcast from Inappropriate Conversations addressing how we do church as Christians. Episodes will be posted on inappropriateconversations.org, and uh, I can be found on uh, Facebook as WTE Podcast. Walk the Earth has its own Facebook page. And both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations share both the RSS feed. I also interact with both shows simultaneously on Twitter. I can be found there as at IC underscore Greg. And the email address is IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I started many years ago, 2013, on Walk the Earth with a topic that was dealing with whether membership at a local church is as eternal as being part of the body of Christ. This episode, like all other episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, can be found at the website. I will be, in a talkback series, selectively sharing old Inappropriate conversation shows back, uh, because the starting point for the Spotify experience is 2017, mid-year. There will be occasional talkbacks for Walk the Earth as well. In fact, a year ago, there was at least one talkback to a past Walk the Earth that was related to Christmas, as I did a lot of talkback episodes looking at Christmas as a holiday. Here's the gist of it, though. My family, back in 2013, was changing churches. And at the time, we thought we might be changing denominations, too. It did not reflect a change in our personal or collective religious experience. No, it was a change in that church and trying to manage and stay faithful to Christ followers while dealing with the issues in that particular church and at the district level of that denomination. Walk the Earth became an attempt to chronicle that transition. But it wasn't a chronicle of that transition in the form of a week-by-week, you know, blow-by-blow of new church visits and what the experience was inside that church. Rather, Walk the Earth is all about the questions that arose from the process of visiting at least 16 different churches from more than a half dozen denominations trying to find a new church home, and even after successfully navigating that, still having questions left to address, or in the case of this one, questions that have kind of come up since. We have, for new listeners to Walk the Earth, as a family, or more, more rightly as a couple, my wife and I, as our grown children have since uh, graduated from college, gotten married, gotten jobs, and they're they're on their own path with their own 
uh, religious experience. But for us, we've successfully moved to a new church home. And in the process of doing, some of the questions that kind of came up after that were, well, now we're new members for the first time in a different congregation. That's raising some questions. We're part of a denomination, and we're part of a denomination we'd never been a part of before, something new in that respect. And among the things that I've been sort of dealing with, especially in the last couple of years, is as we've seen American Christianity become more and more uh, cravenly political, I guess would be the way I would word it. Yes, it's become more cravenly political. Well, how do you address still trying to be a Christ follower at a point in time when these other changes are kind of happening? So for today's question, whether spirituality has become a private matter, well, kind of begs the question. Has it become a private matter? I'll try to answer that at the end of this particular show when I dive out of my own experience, my own perspectives, into some stats, into a more national perspective. But if we take that first part for granted and say, well, perhaps spirituality has seemingly here in recent years become more and more of a private matter, why? And it may be because churches are, you know, using spirituality at times, some churches, to exclude to attack even people who otherwise are trying their best to follow um, to follow the Lord. Uh, the Walk the Earth page on Facebook has currently, and it won't stay there long because I'll probably pin this episode to the top of that page when it's uh, posted, but at the time I'm recording, I shared a post on November 17th that was put there by Naked Pastor from NakedPastor.com. This is David Hayward, who's the author, and he had a uh, cartoon, essentially sketch drawings that he does. His was called uh, Google Translate Prayer, and it's a page that basically is a sort of uh, his facsimile of a Google Translate you know, screen where instead of typing in a word and trying to understand what that French word means in English or you know, the other way around, it's a question of Christianese, where Christianese has been detected. And it's offering a, a comic version of what Google might do to turn Christianese into everyday English. In the, uh, the left-hand side of the translate block, the Christianese detected is, how can I pray for you? And as translated into English, David Hayward has called this out to be, please tell me all your dirty little secrets so that I will have something to gossip about. Google Translate on the Christianese of how can I pray for you? Hayward says this in his post uh, that goes back to November 17th of this year. I've told people things about myself that I never should have. I trusted their title, pastor or leader, rather than than them as a person. Being vulnerable with your secrets is healthy in a trusting relationship. Being vulnerable with your secrets publicly uh, when you're ready to do so may be healthy too. But it's damaging when your secrets become information used against you. Do not feel compelled to share your story just because you're told you should. Only do it when you know you and your story are safe. That's David Hayward from NakedPastor.com. And I think it gives you a sense of some of the things that I have on my mind, some of my thoughts going into this particular question. Because I think it's probably true today that if we, you know, sort of lazily and casually divided Protestant Christianity, or maybe even Christianity internationally, into two camps. And it doesn't matter what we call them. We could call them liberal and conservative. We could call them you know, progressive and traditional. 
probably the uh, the IDs don't really matter because they don't offer the necessary kind of description. And it's always a false dichotomy to try to divide anything into two parts and say, well, this versus that. But I'm going to go there just for the sake of trying to answer why this question is so important to me. We've seen plenty of evidence in the last decade or so of churches that once they find out that this family that is joined has an, a gay son and that the family is not trying to fix that son's behavior, they have accepted their son's sexual orientation as is, that church will then turn on this family that is otherwise joined and attempted to participate faithfully in doing things like denying the family communion, for example, or refusing to baptize a new child that the parents of that family has had, uh, refusing to bury a child in the family because of the uh, the offense of somebody in that household being gay. We've seen this on numerous occasions. I think it was just earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, where uh, former Vice President Joseph Biden was denied communion in a Roman Catholic church because they didn't disagree with anything that he f- uh, believed in from the perspective of theology or his faith. They disagreed with his politics. Now, there may be some who have a hard time parsing out those things, but I personally don't. And I think that that is absolutely what was being done by choosing to deny communion. There is a past walk the earth question that I've answered that looked at that kind of question very directly. And I want to call it out so I can uh, feel comfortable that I don't have to repeat any of it. I don't have to repeat myself. It was walk the earth 50 from March of 2018, answering the question of whether Jesus should have washed the feet of Judas. So we know and can probably, you know, sort of stipulate from past walk the earth questions that there is sort of a divide there. And I think that divide stops people from sharing as openly as they could inside what should be the greatest available opportunity for accountability. If you read the uh, if you read the headlines, if you listen to the marketing, it's not unusual for churches, even even evangelical churches, to say that their congregation offers wonderful opportunities for people to um, kind of uh, unburden their souls, address their concerns, improve their relationship with the Lord through accountability groups. But so again, sometimes those accountability groups play out exactly the way David Hayward described in the cartoon that I mentioned earlier. So how do you navigate this line where you may have people who are having um, spiritual questions, doubts, fears, that they would benefit from having a conversation? And maybe the right way to do it is to say, well, you should have a conversation with the paid professional who's had some training in counseling as, a, as an ordained minister. Maybe you should look to the pastor for that. Or maybe there's a way of seeking within the congregation the right kind of eldership for mentoring. Or maybe a good, healthy church will have the right kind of small group for that. But really, at the end of the day, it all comes down to trust. If that trust can't be established, then Hayward's advice about being careful and protecting yourself and your story is very wise advice indeed. And I'd like to hit the role trust plays from a few different angles that might initially seem unrelated. Because there's very likely to be a pretty direct relationship between workplace levels of trust and the levels of trust in uh, in other areas. So I may mention an example from work or home and compare that to the church. The work one I usually tend to use is, to me, somewhat obvious, but 
Whenever I've shared it with people, they seem a little bit surprised at the insight. So I'll share it here. Most workplaces, at least most uh, office environments, have a an email system, some sort of shared environment, whether it's a, it's a Google-based Gmail system or Outlook or something else. There's usually an email system, and most uh, professional email systems offer the opportunity to retain emails, to save or archive something, so that it won't be deleted through some sort of an auto-delete process. The workplaces that I've been in, Sometimes it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, but over time an email that has been read and simply filed will be systematically removed. That there's a shelf life to email that's kind of very important both for storage and legal reasons. But to avoid that process, to hang on to a piece of information longer for hopefully good business reasons, an email can be retained or archived. And what I've found is that there's a pretty direct relationship between the trust levels in an organization and the number of retained emails. If the retained email folder, if the archives are large and swelling and getting larger every day, you can be pretty sure that there's some trust issues within that organization. And, on the other hand, if levels of trust have um, have improved to such a degree that an actual measurable level of efficiency can be found just by looking at the benefits of that trust, you're probably looking at an environment that doesn't have a very big archive, where there's not quite as many retained emails. Because my personal experience, just from observation, is the lower the levels of trust, the higher the number of retained emails. I might just need that piece of information later to defend myself. That sort of mentality. Both work and home also have this thing, and I'm going to make the comparison primarily from the angle of parenting, and just make a blanket statement, that there is a fundamental weakness in techniques like because I said so, or concepts like my way or the highway. All of these arguments seem to be focused more on power over people, and less on any sort of dedication to principles and ideas. Whenever you hear somebody throw the parental because I said so out there or the the uh, boss to employer my way or the highway claim out there, you have a pretty good indication that what's going on is more about power and less about people and it has almost nothing to do with principles. So there's that problem. And if you were in that environment inside a church, if there was a because I said so mentality and how preaching and teaching were done, if the concept of of sharing um, thoughts and concerns and uh, trying to seek uh, other perspectives and advice was turned around and weaponized, then you're also dealing with a because I said so or my way or the highway mentality. So I've been thinking about that on the negative side. And then this week something happened which presented me what I'm going to argue is a positive counterpoint, maybe not to the same idea, but close enough that I'm going to make a comparison. Because this is an old friend of mine that I wanted to mention on this particular topic anyway. Because I want to compare the kinds of conversations, the deeply, spiritually edifying conversations that I've experienced in my past, including some completely outside the context of church. More of a living room, dining room conversation than a sanctuary or fellowship hall or parlor conversation. And this Facebook post I want to refer to is by that same friend. So let me call this up. It's a Christmas time idea, but it also has a lot to do with the power of being in the in the presence of people that you trust and love. Let me go there.
I'm not going to assign authorship to my friend Marcy, but I will quote the post that she shared. My children each year ask me the same question. After thinking about it, I've decided to give them the real answer. What do I want for Christmas? I want you. I want you to keep coming around. I want you to bring your kids around. I want you to ask me questions. Ask my advice. Tell me your problems. Ask for my opinion. Ask for my help. I want you to come over and rant about your problems, rant about life, whatever. Tell me about your job, your worries, your spouses, your kids, your fur babies. I want you to continue sharing your life with me. Come over and laugh with me or laugh at me. I don't care. Hearing you laugh is music to me. It goes on from there. But I told her that I said I really appreciated this because it talks about the power of presence. And as someone who maybe more on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast than Walk the Earth, still spends a lot of time thinking and dwelling in the area of nostalgia, this post triggered more than just a little bit of nostalgia for me. Now, I think it's an outstanding Christmas post. It may or may not have the same relevance to people who are not in my age group. It may mean more when you're 50 and up, but I'm in that bracket, and so I'm kind of feeling this. Especially at this time of year, there's a certain power in presence. Now, part of the reason this hit me hard this year is that I know that I'm dealing with loss. For three consecutive years, my wife and I are going through first Christmas without. Three years ago was the first Christmas without my mom, then without our dog, and now without her dad. We've had losses, and the losses have hit us and accumulated in multiple ways over successive years. These losses called to my attention, perhaps especially in the case of my mom, areas where I'd fallen short on things like presence and attentiveness, being there, just being there. Now, being there is not easy to do when you're four states away or five states away, but I'm not sure I was there as much as I could have been on those times when I was able to be there at least not until the very end. The second reason this thing really resonated with me, well, second is ironic, because I want to refer to a song called Seconds by the Human League, with lyrics like, It took seconds of your time to take his life. It took seconds. And I've had conversations with my friend Marcy about that particular song. And what I guess I'm getting at when I say, if spirituality is you know, stuck in a private matter, maybe all the way down to a, a privacy level where it's just yours and you don't share it with anybody. And if it's because of the way churches are either behaving or failing to behave, then that is a great and profound loss. I can remember my senior year in high school, sitting in Marcy's living room in her house, having a conversation because she was my friend. Uh, I was dating the woman who's now my wife at the time, but I was having some things go on socially at school that were not really going my way. And she had taken the time to reach out and offer um, an ear, I guess would be the way I would word that. And it began conversations that continued on just not just in the one day that the what's wrong with you, how can I help conversation started. We began sharing more and more with each other. And for whatever reason, this was after school at her house. And we were talking about the band, The Human League, their recently released album, Dare. And a song that was not a single, you know, Seconds as a track, 
got nowhere near the radio airplay time that Don't You Want Me got. Um, I preferred the song Darkness far more, both musically and lyrically. And probably none of those songs, including their big hit single, were as fun as The Things That Dreams Are Made Of, the opening track to the album. But for whatever reason, the song Seconds is the one we were talking about. Did I bring it up? Or was this her album? I'm not sure. But in a conversation about capital punishment, in a conversation about what I felt was the occasional need for an eye for an eye to be executed, she mentioned to me, and maybe even Guns was part of the conversation, that there's something so quick and so final and so irretrievable about the moment that a finger pulls a trigger. It just takes a second, and that second can change everything. I'm here to tell you that although I'm not sure I remember why I recall that high school conversation so vividly, it could be just me and nostalgia, that's possible, but it might be part of my reaction to this question, because we don't discuss things this serious today in churches. I'm going to talk about two different churches in this context. I'm going to talk about the one I left, and I'm going to talk about the one I'm at, and I'm going to offer criticism in both directions where I'm well aware that the common denominator is me. I might well be the problem. And the fact that I'm identifying the problem doesn't necessarily get me past step one here. So, full disclaimer, I might be the problem. But why don't we discuss spirituality, spiritual problems, doubts, controversial and complicated issues, other things like that inside the church? David Hayward offers a thought that maybe it's because some of that information gets turned around and weaponized in the form of gossip, or even worse. Maybe maybe excommunication is a factor that needs to be worried about or, or managed. I guess, you know, I want to offer the disclaimer that I'm just going to refer to my personal experience in the last two churches I was at. Because when I go back earlier than that to the churches I attended when I was in um, elementary school, junior high school, and high school, maybe some of these kind of tough conversations really were happening. Maybe that's better. I have some thoughts on that that I'll get to as well, because there is a bit of a tie-in between this and the next couple of things that are going to happen on this feed. I've got a talk back episode coming up and a new episode of Inappropriate Conversations on a related theme coming up. But first, maybe it's possible that some do have the experience that I'm questioning right now. Maybe for some people, spirituality in their church is not a private matter, and that there is nothing that they can't openly discuss. Problems, doubts, you know, controversial issues, complicated topics, places where agree to disagree is permitted, and there isn't some sort of an assumption that the church is always right and the church has the right answers, and the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, and therefore somebody's going to leave this thing, this this conversation's going to turn into polemic or argument, and somebody's going to leave it a loser because there's going to be a winner. Maybe the experience for some people is is better than that. Or maybe I just have a very different definition of what those conversations could be like but aren't. And maybe some people who would knee-jerk react to this particular question, thinking that they are having open and challenging and deeply spiritual and probing conversations, when maybe from my perspective on the outside looking in, I might just say that's a bit too surface. That you can have conversations in the church about spirituality that aren't what I'm looking for, that we can use an adjective like deep and not necessarily convey the meaning that I'm looking for when I use an adjective like deep. It's so easy 
for spirituality itself, for the whole thing to just be deemed private, perhaps as a means of protection, for a sense of safety. You know, you'll never be excommunicated. You'll never be excommunicated. Let me say this very clearly. Literally or figuratively, you will never be excommunicated for keeping your doubts and disappointments to yourself. And you might be if you don't. Sad but true? Maybe. But we have, every time there's a news story about somebody being kicked out of their church because, you know, in, in their you know, younger age, when they were younger, they had an abortion. Or whatever the issue might be. It could be as simple as how you voted and how you decided to vote came up in conversation. I mentioned uh, in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, I'm pretty sure I shared the story of 1984, uh, living in a state like Oklahoma, intentionally casting a vote for Walter Mondale. Not necessarily because I was that crazy about what Mondale's you know, platform was, but that I just didn't want Ronald Reagan to win in a landslide. I had this, as it turned out to be, very apt perception that something was wrong that he was showing signs of being a dementia patient or having Alzheimer's. And the last thing I wanted was somebody like that to have the notion that the entire nation was behind whatever the voices in his head might have told him to do. And I realize voices in his head is an unfair, I've, I've you know, kind of left the main road there. That's not necessarily a descriptive sign of dementia or Alzheimer's. But I caught myself in more than just a little bit of flack for... Um, Voting strategically is how I worded it. I even wrote an essay, posted it on the door of my dorm called Value to Your Vote in 1984. There was no way a state like Oklahoma was going to have a majority of people vote for Mondale. But any one of us could have tilted the popular vote in a strategic way to say, listen, I'm okay with you staying in office, but I don't want you to have any crazy ideas about your power or your mandate. That was not a welcome conversation in the church near my campus in 1984, at least not as I perceived it. So there are other examples, perhaps better examples. Let me hit a couple of them. I mentioned a college conversation in my apartment with friends in Walk the Earth number 48. And I also shared parts of that same conversation in Inappropriate Conversations number 80. Same story, told from a couple of different directions. And that's what I'm talking about. The kind of conversation the Holy Spirit might just choose to interrupt with a contribution like, it's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. I was having a conversation like that on February 6th of that particular year, 1987. And those are the kind of conversations I'm talking about. Later on as an adult, when I was part of an interfaith ministries group in the heart of the heart of the country, it was around the time that my kids were born. So I've you know, married, gotten a job, having kids. It's a grown-up more of a situation than a college-age situation. And that interface faith ministries group was trying to have some of these same conversations about theology and spirituality. It was a fairly large Midwestern city, a population of 300,000 plus, enough so that you were able to create a group meeting on a regular basis with Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Baha'i, Buddhists. You had enough variety that you could bring together, legitimately bring together people with different faith experiences. But despite that group's effort, the challenge was that uh, trying to make respectfulness paramount, that that was the most important thing, I think we often cut corners and ended up dulling the results that we wanted in the process of the give and take. We were, I would call it, too careful, perhaps. 
as far back as fifth or sixth grade in elementary school, I now realize that I was enough of a challenge to my Sunday school teachers that I may, it may not have been a coincidence. Let's put it this way. It may not have been a coincidence that my parents ended up being the co-teachers of the Sunday school class when I got to seventh grade. That I probably went from the elementary school level of being curious and asking lots of questions of increasing complexity, that by the time I got to seventh grade, there might have been a sense that that maybe this kid's own parents should be the teachers of his of his next year in, in Sunday school. I don't know that to be true, and I'm no longer in a position to ask my parents whether it's true, but it seems like it might be true, because I find it funny that youth leaders, both in this case in the Sunday school sense, my parents, and also youth group, like in the United Methodist Church, we used to call it UMYF, United Methodist Youth Fellowship, in that youth group con- construct, these leaders would always claim to have an ask-me-anything approach. But they were probably at least hopeful that they wouldn't have to mean it. You know? And I'm not criticizing the approach. I think that's exactly the right thing to do. I was asked in an interview once whether or not I was ever interested in being, like, the youth group leader or even teaching a youth Sunday school class, uh, something my parents had the guts to do when I was in seventh grade. I uh, long said I did not have the guts to do. Didn't have any interest in being part of of, uh, having a responsibility for the Christian education and fellowship of people who were in junior high school and high school because my worldview was I need to be able to tell people the truth. At all times, I want to tell people the truth. And I'm not 100% sure in the climate we live in today that that's necessarily been demonstrably possible between adults. It is certainly not possible between adult youth group leaders and their kids. Because again, I was asked me anything kind of questions in 5th, 6th, and 7th grade that, you know, again, you could make an argument that maybe the church at that time decided that Maybe Greg's parents should lead the Sunday school he's in when he graduates and goes to junior high school next year. That's possible. It's also ironic, because if I make a comparison to the next talk back I've planned for an old and highly downloaded previous Inappropriate Conversations episode, next up there on that front is sex education. And it ties in with both uh, the church and with the next Inappropriate Conversations podcast that I'm going to record brand new in January. So I'm going to hit the sex education episode I recorded in the very first year, and then I'm going to revisit maybe a slightly different angle on what could probably be called sex education again, but from where I sit right now. And the reason I think that it's important for me to talk about it in this context, because I asked a question, and I don't think I worded it quite this way, but In that 7th grade Sunday school classroom on a random Sunday morning, I kind of asked what the difference was between what you might call a documentary film approach to sex education and what was selling tickets at the cinema that my parents were so upset about. The old-time cinema moved into our neighborhood, showing exclusively X-rated movies. And I think that was one of the biggest factors that led my parents to decide during my 7th grade year in junior high school that my 8th grade year was going to be in a different part of town, in a different neighborhood, and in a different school. And we moved between 7th and 8th grade. And again, it couldn't solely be because of that. It was probably other factors. Um, our growing family was a little bit bigger than the house that we were in, and you know, the, maybe the drive time to work, and th- there were other factors. But certainly the fact that we were now a church that was less than a mile away from a pornographic cinema 
Well, it was raising questions. It was talk in the hallways of the church about what could be done, right? In the midst of that, I must have heard enough of it to ask the question, well, what's the difference between that and the kind of film you might see in a sex education class? I'll just ask you to stay tuned for the next talkback episode of Inappropriate Conversations, because that question was not as controversial as it seems. My sex education coursework was in church. It was in that church with many of the same students that I was sitting next to in that 7th grade Sunday school class and the chaperones at that comprehensive weekend sex education class in my church included my parents, who were now sitting in as the Sunday school teachers when I asked the question, I don't necessarily think I understand. I don't have any concept. It was a legit question. I was being sincere. I don't have any concept as a 7th grader of how a sex education film and porn are different. Now, my father had an answer, and it was something to the degree of, uh, I don't know, exploitation or, um, you know, dramatization, I guess. He, he would have had a way of wording it that basically, you know, obviously you can't make a claim that porn is fake, but there's a certain embellishment. And obviously in the area of camera angle and all that, it's, it's not intended to necessarily to be instructional. And I sort of agree with those people who make the complaint about pornography that anybody who watches it taking instruction from it, whether watching as if it's instructional or subliminally being instructed, that it's not necessarily healthy. There's a, a Friends episode, I think, that kind of hits that in a humorous way where one of the New York public access channels was streaming porn and the guys in the guys' apartment, uh, you know, Joey and Chandler, were getting it and watching a lot of it. And at one point it dawns on them that it was impacting the way they were interacting with others, that they had gone to the bank and were very surprised that the teller wasn't inviting them to take their clothes off and go for a romp in the, in the, in the vault. And it sort of occurred to them that they'd been maybe mainlining the wrong kind of material. But if you had been mainlining the wrong kind of material, if your, uh, if your healthy sexual relations were being negatively impacted by the consumption of adult material, do you take that to the church? This is not, I mean, for me, it's a hypothetical question. I guess I'm asking someone who isn't me type questions. But, you know, we've seen instances in churches where somebody coming forth and saying, hey, I've got a problem with this. I'm really struggling and I need help. Is that the first conversation you have on the way to actually getting that help? Or is that your last conversation as a member of that church? And if you don't know for sure what the answer is, then it's a real problem. And maybe the issue for me would be less likely to be something like that and more likely to be, theological issues. I mean, these walk the earth questions are legit questions. Some of them probably serve the means of trying to explain, well, why did we leave the church we left? And what are what's our criteria for finding a new one? The, the first year of the show was laid out after a lot of church visits had happened. So I was able to kind of follow a fairly paved, paved path. But here in the last couple of years, it's just been, well, what am I dealing with right now? Including questions like, you know, how can you continue to trust the counsel of people in church when the evangelical Christians who for your entire life have said character is all that matters in a presidential election, chuck that out the window in the interest of stacking the Supreme Court or whatever they thought they were going to gain by making a choice where you might have had two options. You probably had more than two choices, but you probably had two options where you might have decided one of that both of them had low character. But it wasn't very hard to figure out which one had the lower character. And how do you continue to align yourself with a Protestant Christian community that clearly lost its mind a couple of years ago or 
and betrayed the standards that it had always set. I mean, these are my elders who were saying, hey, when in doubt, you got to vote your conscience. Character is all that matters in a presidential election. Well, that didn't turn out to be true. So I'm asking questions that I really am genuinely and truly wrestling with. And back in seventh grade, I was asking a question that maybe I wasn't wrestling with, but I found it confusing. And even then, less than a year, maybe a year and a half after that sex education coursework over that weekend, I was hitting a point where maybe there was a line to be found. That you could talk about pornography in a small group, comprehensive sex education class run by your church with the blessing of its denomination in the 1970s. And even you know, a year or so later in the 1970s, find out that there are actually some questions that you're just you know, not allowed to ask. I guess I was blessed because I was in a course being taught by my parents, so I was allowed to ask it, and I did get an answer. And I wonder if I would have gotten the answer. So maybe I wouldn't have gotten the answer if the teacher from my previous year was leading this group of students one more time. Interesting. So I began this walk the earth asking everyone to indulge me, to assume that the question had a you know sort of assumption that was valid, whether spirituality has become a private matter because churches are using spirituality to attack and exclude. Well, I'm not 100% sure I've made the case that enough churches are using spirituality to exclude and excommunicate and ostracize and attack people, that that's... That's the inevitable result. I don't think I've made the case of inevitability in that area. But I would like to revisit the assumption at the beginning and say, hey, to what degree is spirituality, even within Christian circles, increasingly becoming a private matter? And for anybody who thought, well, that, that's probably a false assumption, you probably, you probably owe me a second listen then. Because I think I've got enough information beyond just my own observations to suggest that no, It's getting harder to talk about God. Now, that sentence is the headline of an article that was published about a year ago, October 13th, 2018, NewYorkTimes.com, an opinion piece written by Jonathan Merritt. Now, Merritt is a writer about the intersection of religion, culture, and politics, so theoretically, my kind of guy. I've only recently begun following him on Twitter, so only time will tell if if that assumption is actually true. But this article, which is available at NewYorkTimes.com, has the subheading of the decline in our spiritual vocabulary has many real-world consequences. So he begins by saying that more than 70% of Americans identify as Christians, but you wouldn't know it from listening to them. An overwhelming majority of people say that they don't feel comfortable speaking about faith most of the time. That was his assumption. And he, like me, sort of shared this idea that, you know, just from the outsider looking in to sort of make a make an assumption that sacred speech and spiritual conversations are in decline. This is quoting him. But this was only a hunch I had formed in response to anecdotal evidence and personal experience. I lacked the quantitative data needed to say for sure. So um, Merritt describes going out to get the, the necessary data. I thought I might find some of this or something like this from the Pew Research Forum. And who knows, it may very well be there at the Pew Research Forum. But uh, instead, I've got this from Merritt, who says, Last year, this was 2017, I enlisted the Barna Group, a social research firm focused on religion and public life, to conduct a survey of a 1,000 American adults. The survey revealed that most Americans, more than three-quarters actually, do not have spiritual or religious conversations. 
More than one-fifth of the respondents admit that they have not had a spiritual conversation at all in the past year. Six in ten say they had a spiritual conversation only on rare occasions, either once or twice, 29%, or several times, another 29%, in the past year. A paltry 7% of Americans say they talk about spiritual matters regularly. But here's the shocker. Practicing Christians who attend church regularly aren't faring much better. A mere 13% had a spiritual conversation around once a week. For those who practice Christianity, the trends are confounding. It is a religion that has always produced progeny through the combination of spiritual speech and good deeds. Nearly every New Testament author speaks about the power of spiritual speech, and Jesus' final command to his disciples was to go into the world and spread his teachings. You cannot be a Christian in a vacuum. And yet, even someone like me, who has spent his entire life using God talk, knows how hard it has become. Five years ago, I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City and ran headfirst into an unexpected language barrier. Sure, I could still speak English as well as I always had, but I could no longer speak God. Now, I'm going to stop there, because I'm not interested in whether this story takes a turn toward political correctness and what's permitted and what's not permitted. Instead, I want to stop and go right back and dwell inside the church itself. He is saying that 7% of the people in this Barna survey of just Americans in general say they talk about spiritual matters on a regular basis, but it only gets better up to 13%. If they were practicing Christians who attended church on a regular basis, they also don't have any sort of spiritual conversation any, at any regular, anything like once a week in terms of regularity. And let me go back to what I kind of said earlier when I was kind of trying to make the point that there may be a lot of people who, rightly or wrongly, presume that they do have a lot of legitimately spiritual conversations, but maybe the thing I would define as a spiritual conversation is deeper than what they're talking about. How many of the people in the 13% group are saying that they have those kind of conversations because they wish they had them, or they're, they're embarrassed that they don't, or they consider any reference whatsoever to God or the Bible to be a de facto spiritual conversation? Because I don't view it that way at all. Again, if you look at the questions that are typically asked and answered on Walk the Earth, these are the kinds of questions that I would consider to be the spiritual questions, whether Jesus is the answer disarming the violent and uh, largely political divisions in our society. It's fair to question whether Jesus is the answer if the question I asked earlier that same year after the election was, well, maybe we can't trust people who tell us that you should vote your conscience and the character is all that matters anymore. That's a fair point. Whether missionary work is just a friendly front for cultural imperialism. Um, whether you would let a dozen people die to save a thousand frozen embryos, whether Jesus should have washed the feet of Judas. If you look back at the uh, available past Walk the Earth episodes on podcatchers, these are episodes that I'm trying to make sure stay in the feed. Whenever I add a new episode, I extend the limit. So the starting point always tends to be somewhere around June or July of 2017, and I'm building to go forward from there. So it's part of the reason I'm using talkback episodes to share the really old stuff so that I can always have that beginning point being in the middle of 2017 with those questions in particular. Is what I might call your faith in Christmas 
in jeopardy if you call into question the idea of whether it's actually necessary that Mary was a virgin instead of a young girl. There are two translations available to you if you look at the ancient original languages, Hebrew in particular. Are we talking about a woman who's never had sex, or are we talking about a very young girl? And if your faith in Christmas as a concept is at stake, well, could your faith in Christ himself be at stake as well? Now, I don't spend a lot of time worrying over the the past sexual practices of Mary. But if you were somebody who was hung up on that, in the modern American Protestant church today, that's my experience, I won't speak for Catholicism, but in the modern Protestant church today, do you bring this up at all? If you do bring it up, who do you talk to? And if your questions are unwelcome, what are the consequences? I think it's fair to ask and consider whether... Merit is right that Christianity is not just a a one-person thing, that it's very hard, if not impossible, to be a Christian in a vacuum. Fair enough. But where's the vacuum coming from if there is one? If I choose to answer this question with a statement that, in a self-censoring way, it's probably true. It may not be an overt act of power and control. It may not be inevitably true that anybody who asks a tough question is also asked to leave the church forever. But if the if the question's legit, if the fear is out there, if there's doubt, not about the question of faith being challenged, but actually even how that question will be received, if there's doubt, then in a, a self-censoring way, it might actually be true that spirituality has become a private matter. Because the only person I can trust with the questions I've got is me. Because if I raise those questions in a more public way, I might get attacked. I might get excluded. At the very least, my standing might be called into question. This is very inconsistent with the things we hear said. Remember the youth group, the ask-me-anything mentality of your average youth group, or even small group, for one example. But there's another example that comes right out of what I might describe as the Advent Scriptures. I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 6. A child is born to us, a son is given, and he will be our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. To what extent can we refer to the Messiah, the foretold child born on Christmas, Wonderful Counselor, if we're afraid to ask those who've picked up his mantle to lead his church, afraid to ask them even the simplest question, to give ourselves even the slightest hope of addressing doubt. Now I know I can be a handful. I was a handful in 6th and 7th grade, clearly, in retrospect. I can be a handful. And maybe it's true that the kind of conversations that I'm inclined to have may not be the kind of ones you want to have with a microphone in hand. It may not be the kind of thing that you want to record and publish as a podcast. I get it. But it's hard for me to see myself continuing to thrive in situations where it's harder and harder to find people with whom I can ask the challenging questions and push back if I don't like their answers. My mother is gone. My father-in-law is gone. My circle seems to be getting smaller, or at least I feel that more acutely this time of year when I'm going through another holiday season, anniversarying past deaths, experiencing another recent death, and hoping that maybe next Christmas 
will be the first Christmas in a very long time that we're not celebrating the first Christmas without so-and-so at the table beside us. That's my problem. That's the baggage I'm bringing to it. But I think the questions are just as fair all the same. Have we created a small group environment where these kind of conversations can happen? At the church we left, I'd made a concerted effort to create that kind of small group environment where these kinds of questions could be asked. But I see very little evidence from the people that we worshipped with and that we studied with and that we attended Bible studies and other small groups with that they took my questions seriously. Perhaps they didn't even think I took my questions seriously. Because maybe the one thing worse than not feeling fully equipped to have these conversations, maybe the one thing worse than that is simply being humored. The kind of thing that makes you want to leave a church, maybe even a denomination, walk the earth and, finding, and find a better spiritual path. And I believe right now I am on a better spiritual path. But I'm legitimately concerned about what would happen if my questions got too serious for the person who just happens to be sitting next to me on any given Sunday morning. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Wonderful Counselor, we take so many things for granted, Jesus. This time of year, we seem to be focused so much on your birth, as if your existence was more important than the things that you taught, the things that you did, the example that you set, and the ways you told us to follow. Lord, it's hard for me to think of going and making disciples in a world where no one, even those including the ones inside the church, are open to the conversation, or that if I really did run into a serious problem, if I was facing a temptation that I couldn't deal with on my own, that I might have to think very hard about the path to get that help. Lord, we know that all roads in our faith lead to you, but we also know that the people that we're in fellowship with should be your hands and your feet and your ears and your voice for people who are really genuinely struggling. We know in this society we face difficult, challenging problems. And that too often we're given far too simple, two-dimensional answers. Lord, I believe that you, as the Lord of the universe, have more than just a 360-degree perspective, if that makes sense. That there's a not just a this-universe's point of view, but an infinite number of possible worlds with universes with points of view. And I would have already lost the train with almost anybody I wanted to talk to just by calling into question the existence of time or making a casual reference to multiple universes. Jesus, it is hard for me to continue to be in a place where I don't necessarily feel like things are open for discussion because I can compare it to what it was like when I was in youth group as a small kid and ask me anything really meant something. Lord, I know you are open to ask me anything and that prayer life should get some ways down the road of addressing the questions but Lord when this prayer is over and I've said amen I'm not 100% sure I know where the deep challenging uh, iron sharpens iron kind of perspective is going to come from the next time I've got a question that I'm not sure I'm capable of dealing with in the most constructive way your, your word, O oh Lord, is a light unto our path. 
but you never meant us to walk alone. And if we can't talk to each other while we walk, to what degree are we not alone? Lord, I thank you for being with me, that as I remember through these past recently shared episodes, my perspective going all the way back to when I was in school and uh, praying in school and having an understanding of what real prayer means versus simply putting on airs. But, you know, those memories also call to my mind the gulf, that I may not actually have somebody other than my wife that I can sit down and have a conversation with about capital punishment, terrorism, and the lyrics to a 1980s song by the Human League. And without that, everything seems ever so slightly diminished. Help me to recognize that, Lord, call it for what it is, and find my Christmas spirit in spite of the rest. If there's a way that you can offer me that counselor, wonderful counselor, please do. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. part of the pride 48 network find more shows over at pride 48.com